Let's bow in prayer once more, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to read it, memorize it, think about it for a long time. Thank you for the opportunity to, to hear it preached. But Lord, we recognize that any interaction we have with your word requires your blessing, your spirit to teach us. And so we ask you now, do teach us from your word. Give us humble hearts, ready to hear, ready to apply, ready to believe your truth. Be glorified in how we respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our study of 1 Corinthians, we're in a part of the book where Paul was answering some questions that the people of Corinth had asked him in the last letter they sent him. It's a very practical part of the book. And it's a good reminder that answers to life's questions are available in the Scripture for people who will believe it and are willing to look. Even the harder questions, the answers are here, the, the, the way to figure it out is here. The part of the book we're looking at today deals with questions regarding marriage. Paul had already talked about that in the first part of chapter 7, and then he moved to the issue of contentment and the related issue of discontentment, partly because that was driving some of these wrong attitudes about marriage. It, it was driving some other things too, but, but he put it where he put it because it, it applied to how people were thinking about marriage. And now he's returning to the subject of marriage and continuing to answer the questions that they asked him. And we understand what the questions are. We figure those out from the answers. They were asking things like, um, is it okay to get married? Or would it be holier if I were to commit to lifelong celibacy? Is that, is that a more godly thing to do? Um, others were saying, well, do I have to get married? Is this really God's will for each and every person? And I'm somehow sinning if I don't really want to do that? And if marriage really is holier, then should Christians who are married get divorced so they can commit to lifelong celibacy from here? Now, there are some cultural issues in the mix that are pretty different from how we um, see things now. Parents were much more involved in choosing the, or identifying at least the children's spouses. Fathers gave daughters in marriage more literally than is the case today in most places. Sensible parents were never working against the wishes of their children, uh, but with those wishes. But it was a different process. And Paul, so because it was a different process in this text, Paul addresses the fathers of these potential brides because they had a lot of control over whether the girl could get married. So even though some of this cultural stuff is a little bit odd to us, I think we're going to find the challenges fit our lives just as well. The questions still exist. The process may be different, but the issues are the same. And we'll see some points we already that we really need to understand and to remember. Our text for today is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25 through verse 40. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 25. Scripture says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of this present distress, 
that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is married is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in spirit and body. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his will, and has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both who gives, both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, as we begin to think again about this subject of marriage, we need to consider some big-picture issues that are directing what Paul has to say. These are the foundations of his thinking in this category, and they give us a point that we need to consider, and that is the status of marriage. What is it? What is it about? What does it mean? What is it worth? There are a lot of opinions about marriage that have become very popular, and many of those opinions are pretty negative. Paul Paul is working from a biblical understanding of marriage, from a biblical definition, which is quite different from a modern cultural understanding of marriage. All of the advice, advice that he gives about marriage is based on the fact that God created this institution and that God set its boundaries. The blessings of marriage come from God. The limitations on marriage come from God. He created it. He defined it. He set the boundaries. And so there's a great deal about marriage that is chatter in the culture that is not mentioned in this passage or any other passage. Modern society has tried to add a lot of things to marriage and to subtract some things from marriage. But those additions aren't found anywhere in the Scripture, in the form that the chatter takes, at least. So, for example, there is no assumption in this text or anywhere else of a third position even being possible. In this text and everywhere in Scripture, 
You're either married or you're not married. There's not a third one. There's not a married in God's eyes. You're either married or you're not married. There's no room here for any redefinition of marriage. People living together without making a commitment of marriage are not mentioned in this text because that subject is covered in the commands not to commit fornication and not to commit adultery. That's why it doesn't need to come up again. It's already been dealt with. And having a society accept those things as being perfectly fine doesn't remove the stigma. It doesn't make the actions legitimate. Be assured that God has not adjusted himself to the whims of secular society regarding sexual conduct outside of marriage. Marriage is defined by God in the creation account. It's a holy institution created by him. It's much more than a legal arrangement. That's what a lot of the arguing has been about, a legal arrangement. Who has rights to have insurance? Who who has rights to get this deduction on their taxes? Marriage is so much more than those things. That's not in here. The IRS doesn't set the standard. The privileges and responsibilities of marriage do not come from any government. They do not come from society. They do not come from the church. They do not come from tradition. They're given by our Creator. So that's the template that Paul is working from when he says the things he says in this chapter. We should also note that Paul is working from a base assumption that marriage is inherently good. Marriage is a good thing. A lot of people don't believe that. People confuse marriage after the fall with what God created. They want to blame their problems, their stubbornness, their selfishness on marriage and then they don't have to deal with their own hearts. But the assumption of Scripture is that marriage is good. It must not be forbidden because it's a good thing. Now, this is why Paul seems to be bouncing back and forth in this text and in the earlier part of the chapter. He says, well, it would be better to be single as I am, but if you marry, you have not sinned. I mean, there just seems to be this, well, but... (laughs) I really like this way, but (laughs) Paul had a gift and calling to remain single, and he liked what God had called him to be. And so he flips between selling the benefits of remaining single with acknowledging that God didn't call most people to be that way. But he's very careful not to leave any room for somebody to draw out some legalistic prohibitions of marriage. His advice about not marrying is based on what he sees going on around him and on his personal experience of fulfillment in that state that God had called him to. But what's going on around him is persecution, and it's increasing. And and maybe he foresaw that much more was coming. God may even have told him that much more was coming. Much more certainly did come. And so he says in the first part of this text that it might be better if you just stay however you are right now. If you're married, don't try to be unmarried. If you're unmarried, don't try to get married. Don't make new commitments, but don't break the commitments you've made. 
life is going to get harder for Christians. But even with that, he says in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. Now, this is important for biblical Christians to understand very clearly because so many people forbid marriage. So many people calling themselves Christians forbid marriage for certain classes of people. Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church forbids bishops to marry. An Eastern Orthodox priest can become a priest while married, but he can't get married if he's a priest. And so if he's widowed fairly early on in life, no remarriage for him because they can't do that. The Roman Catholic Church forbids marriage for priests and nuns. And that enforced celibacy has been in place for less than a 1,000 years. It was the year 1139 when the prohibition was put in place when the Catholic Church said it is sin for nuns and priests to marry. Now, the voluntary celibacy had been practiced for some time by many of them because they had that idea that this would be holier. But the actual prohibition hasn't been in place a thousand years yet. And more than a thousand years before that prohibition was put in place, God said, if you marry, you have not sinned. God even calls teaching that forbids marriage a doctrine of demons. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, Scripture says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, here it is, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. So there's no reason at all in Scripture for forbidding anyone to get married or even for saying that if you don't get married, you have a faster, better path to holiness or that decision will make you more holy by itself. There's there's no basis for any of that. Marriage or celibacy should not be mandated to anyone. You make a, a decision on your own to be celibate, That might be good for you. might be the way God wired you. It won't make you holy by itself, though. So the status status of marriage in Scripture is really clear. It's good and holy. It's from God. It brings with it many blessings, and some people are called to forego those blessings in favor of a different kind of life. Now, there's another detail in this text that we need to note, and that is the trade-off of marriage. Look again at verses 29 to 31. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, what's going on in this part of the text is that things were becoming increasingly difficult for Christians. Practical life issues were getting harder because 
the society was turning more and more against them. And, and Paul is saying that in that kind of situation, the Christian's grip on this life needs to be loosened even more. So if you have a wife, that's great, but you're not to cling to these things like you want to sometimes. You don't need too tight a grip on the weeping, even though you're going to weep. You don't need too tight a grip on the rejoicing, even though you're going to rejoice. He's saying all this needs to just kind of be mediated because as things get harder, we're going to need to focus more on our heavenly future than on the details of this life. And so that paragraph ends with the words, for the form of this world is passing away. Some of what we enjoy here is really good. For those who who are married, we, we get a lot of really good benefits. But even that's passing away. So our focus needs to be not too much on this world. Our grip needs to be not too tight on the things of this world. Now, after making that point, Paul says this in verses 32 to 34, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she, that she may be both be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, in this text, the world is not being used in that negative sense. It's just, it's just here and now. You've got some things to do. You've got more things to attend to if you're married. And there's an interesting play on words here. Concerned comes from a Greek word, merimnao. It means concerned, among other synonyms. Free from concern is the same root word, except it has an alpha privative. Now, that's in English, that's the A at the beginning of a word that makes it its own opposite. Atheist, amoral, asymmetrical. The alpha privative just makes it the opposite. And this is one of those words. And both forms are found in this text. Free from concern and concerned. Without stress and stressed out. This This is a word that can be either positive or negative. It can be a very good kind of concern. It can be a very bad kind of stress. So when Paul says, I don't want you to be concerned, and then talks about two different kinds of concerns with two different kinds of people, He's not being foolish. He's saying, I don't want you stressed out. But single people can concern themselves more with the things of the Lord, and married people have to concern themselves more with some of the issues of the here and now. There are more responsibility. That's the trade-off of marriage. There are tremendous blessings. One of my favorite verses is the male side of those blessings. Maybe that resonates for me. I'm, uh, I identify as male. <laughs> it's Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a, finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We should understand 
that those blessings that God designed into marriage and that we can have in varying degrees as we walk more and more faithfully with Him, those blessings bring with them an array of new responsibilities and commitments and challenges. That's the trade-off. Paul was very concerned about some of the ramifications of that kind of commitment as persecution increased. I mean, think about it. If you're the breadwinner, but you're also the sole bread consumer, and the government arrests you and puts you in prison for being a Christian, nobody's going to starve. They even feed you at prison. But if you're married and you've got kids and you're put in jail for being a Christian, your family's not just deprived of your company, you're the breadwinner. And they're deprived of your provision. That's the trade-off of marriage. Paul is focusing on the additional hardships that could come when that kind of stuff happens. And now, how can you take care of your family? The trade-off also works for the wife. Verses 34, Paul talks about that. He's concerned about the things of the Lord if she's not married. She's concerned about how to please her husband if she is married. That concern is not a bad thing. It just brings with it some more responsibilities. So it can be godly to marry. It can be godly not to marry. It depends on the way God wired you. Just understand the trade-off so that you can make a good decision. Now, Paul is very careful to point out that he's not trying to create some sort of legalistic standard. And and I love how he makes, he he boxes you out if you're trying to do that, because people have a very strong tendency to want to do that. Just give me a list, and then I can know that guy's wrong. That guy's right. I'm right. We love lists. Those do exist. They just don't usually come from Scripture. The legalistic ones never come from Scripture. But in verse 35, Paul says, This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul didn't say any of this to put a restraint on anyone. So he's not working in this line of reasoning to bind anybody with a philosophical argument about marriage. He's not making rules that godly people can then be compelled to follow. He's not creating a system of checklists so that you can go through the checklist and never have to make a decision on your own. He's doing all this so that godly people can obtain wisdom and know how to make good choices. Next, Paul addresses the fathers of potential brides. Now, apparently some of the fathers in Corinth had made commitments already to keep their daughters from marrying. And it's very possible that some of those fathers had even taken vows to keep their children from, keep their daughters from marrying. They, they, they had that idea that's been around for the longest time that it's holier not to marry. Now, this may seem very strange to most of us, but the principle here is really instructive because if you're not struggling with this issue of marriage, you're going to find somewhere to plug yourself in on this one anyway. 
if you've made a commitment to do something sinful, you gave your word. And you're going it, to, it, but then you realize, wait, that's sin. You have an awkward choice to make, don't you? You can repent of your commitment, but then you don't keep your word. But you also don't commit that sin. Or you can keep your commitment, keep your word, but now you're guilty of sin. You're going to have to repent of that, and you might have ruined somebody's life with your foolish decision. So if foolish vows and commitments have been made, Paul seems to be saying that they must not bind the person who made them. Once you understand that the commitment would be to do something sinful, don't follow through in sin. Repent of making a foolish commitment. Do what you now know to be right. In verses 36 to 38, he says, but, but if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart after being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So the daughter's involved in this. She's got an opinion, and he's so he's, you know that because he says, let her marry. He doesn't say make her marry. Just let her marry. Even if you've made a foolish commitment, you're not bound by your foolishness. She wants to get married, and you think this guy's not going to destroy her life? Let the girl get married. You're not sinning if you do that. Now, there's one more detail in this text that we need to see, and that is the priority for everyone. Whether you're married or single believer or how that might change at some point, the priority for everyone, at least for all of us who are believers, involves living a life that honors the Lord and is pleasing to Him. It involves continual devotion to the Lord. And that's what Paul is clearly concerned about in this text for both married and single. Every Christian that's being addressed with this letter, that's the goal. We're to be devoted to the Lord. Now, Paul is clearly grateful that he's not married because he doesn't have to concern himself about a family during his numerous periods of jail time, prison time, because he can devote all of his energy to serving the Lord, because he can travel and go from town to town and get kicked out of a town. There's really not a lot. Just get your bag and go to the next one. There are a lot of reasons that that really worked for Paul. And he wants others to enjoy those blessings. But he also recognizes that most others are called to a different life. And he still wants us to be honoring the Lord, those who are married in their marriages, serving the Lord with every part of our lives. Now, this is the best hope for joy and fulfillment if we devote ourselves to the Lord. And he says that in verse 35, this is for your own benefit, not to put a, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and, and secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. 
the, the assumption here, and, and everywhere in Scripture, the default position in all of life's ups and downs is, that Chris, downs is that Christians are to be devoted to the Lord. That's the goal, whether you're married or you're single, or that changes and you're single again. Personally, Paul is really keyed in on the benefits of his side of the trade-off. For those who are called to marriage, God uses marriage to help us grow in the Lord. (laughs) For many people, being married is the first real challenge to their innate selfishness. (laughs) Now there's not just somebody else to think about. There's somebody else pushing back against that selfishness, going, no, 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 no. (laughs) Many of the fights in marriage come down to this really simple concept. My selfishness has priority over your selfishness. My selfishness is more important than your selfishness. My selfishness should be fed, and your purpose in life is to help me feed it. Now, God uses that to help his children grow. You know, when we realize that's what we're both arguing at the same time, then the argument should pretty quickly go away. We can both go away and repent, come back, and everything will be fine. God forces growth in his children by some of those rough spots. I heard one preacher call it spiritual sandpaper. It's scruffy, but it knocks off the rough spots. Now, there are many more positive ways that marriage helps us grow in Christ. We can encourage one another to godliness. We have the benefit of another perspective that is very different from our own, and if we can stop fighting against that and start listening to that, now we've got a much better view of things. We can make better decisions. We have opportunity to minister to each other. And then if God gives you kids, you get another frontal assault on your selfishness. (laughs) And you get a bunch of hard puzzles that just keep changing all the time. Wait, this is new. I mean, after four, it was always still new. They're all different. (laughs) What do we do with this? You get to do that together. You have the joys together. You got to try to figure out how to raise this one together. Then you get to minister to your kids together. So single people have some real advantages. Married people have some real advantages. And every one of us is wired for one of those or the other. Or maybe you're in the one you don't feel wired for for now. God can take you through that. But everybody's got the same priority. And the more we devote ourselves to the Lord, the better life is going to get. Verse uh, verse 39 gives another reminder of how this devotion in marriage works in the life of a Christian. It says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Marriage commitment is designed to be for as long as both spouses live. But a widow is free to remarry. 
And yet there's a very important limitation on that freedom to remarry. And this one is not in the category of legalism that I was sniping at a minute ago. This is a command from the Lord, summed up here with the words, only in the Lord. She's free to remarry only in the Lord. Christian is free to marry another Christian. A Christian is not free to marry an unbeliever. The core issue here is the fundamental change that God himself must work for someone to become a believer in Christ, to become a child of God. That corrupt, selfish, wicked, arrogant heart has to be completely transformed and and, and by faith in the work that Christ did on the cross, that's what God does. He, he awakens faith. He, he gives us faith. Our hearts are changed. We're, we're transformed from the inside out. We believe that the blood of Christ shed on the cross pays for all of our sins forever. It's a done deal. There's no, no penance to work off. There's no working up to it through a whole lifetime. And maybe I'll get in. We're transformed. We're new creatures because of the work of Christ. And one reason for the the prohibition against marrying an unbeliever if you're a Christian is that it's hard to be married to one of God's enemies. And a person, no matter how sweet, no matter how pretty, no matter how handsome, no matter how much you're infatuated, a person who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ is God's enemy. Now, we pray that'll change, but you better not get married to somebody who's his enemy. Now, that means that God is unreasonable, right? What a big meanie telling you you can't do something. It means that God doesn't know that person nearly as well as you do, right? I thought a lot this week about this part of the passage and how to describe the heart of the arrogant fool who shakes a fist at God and says, no, I know better than you do. To hear them talk, God is an idiot or just evil, just maniacal. And and I thought of this, i got to get this mental picture. Not a vision, just thought of this. Imagine a slippery place by a cliff that would pl- you'd plummet to your death if you ever start sliding. In fact, don't even imagine. There's a fence on Stone Mountain. You ever go up on Stone Mountain? It, it, it curves, and you reach a point where there is no return. You, you're just going to go a little further down that curve, just a little further, a little further. And then all of a sudden, You have no traction, and you plunge to your death, and many have done it. And so the fence has been there since the 1960s when I saw it first. And people go over the fence. Put a sign up. Danger, you will fall to your death. Don't go beyond this point. And people go, I don't know if I even believe the guy that wrote that sign exists. I'm going over the fence. I'm going to organize a dance on that side of the fence. What is this mean person trying to keep me from my fun? Some people see that sign, see that fence, and think that's here for my protection. I would not have noticed that I was in danger. Now I know not to go there. That's really a good thing. Let's stand here and enjoy the view. 
And some people see something like that and say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I know better. Even more foolish to scoff at God's command not to marry an unbeliever if you're a believer. Many are those who have plunged themselves into the horrors of being married to the wrong person because they chose not to pay attention to this sign. Don't do it. Being one flesh with one of God's enemies can never give you what you want. And that's why it's forbidden for you to enter into that relationship. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light and darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The older translations more literally say, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now, yoke is that device that you put around an animal's neck so they can pull the cart. And if it's a a yoke for two animals, you can see the two things. And then the animals have to go the same way. They have to work together or they frustrate each other trying not to go together, but they can't get apart from each other. And so it certainly applies to marriage. It would even apply to a business partnership that you can't get out of. don't, Don't commit yourself to a permanent relationship with an unbeliever. It's going to be miserable. God gives that command to protect you, not to keep you from having fun. There's no harmony. There's no partnership in any legitimate sense of the word. There's no fellowship. There's nothing of consequence in common between a believer and an unbeliever. And so those who disobey this command regarding marriage not only bind themselves in a miserable situation, but they fence themselves off from ever getting the blessings because when the qualified person comes along, they're already married. Now, sometimes people get married when both of the spouses are still unbelievers. One of them gets saved and the other one does not. That's a very different situation. That was addressed back in the early part of this chapter. But don't do it on purpose. God's commands are for your protection. So, whether you're married or single, however that goes throughout your whole life, your life goal is to be devoted to the Lord who saved you. Understand the status of marriage. It is what God says it is. And understand this trade-off. Single or married, one kind of blessing versus another kind of blessing And look to the God you're devoted to if you're longing to be in the other category. Devote yourself to Him in everything. Then you get opportunities and can make choices that fit what God made you to be. Then you can keep right on being devoted to Him. Let's bow in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, I pray you would help us to receive your word, to trust you and to believe you and to recognize that you're far superior to us, that you're wise and good. Help us to apply that understanding to the decisions we make in life. 
Help us to seek your counsel and make good decisions and glorify you. Whatever our situation is right now and however it may change, let our devotion to you be constant. Lord, we pray your blessings on us. We pray you would use your word in our lives today and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.